my name is Kathy and I am a, uh, I'm recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. My hair and my eye, home group is the Tuesday, hi, my, my home group is the Tuesday night 12-step Mount Washington group in Cincinnati. I'd first like to thank those of you who invited me, Liz, particularly, who have been so good in keeping in touch with me over the year and then sending numerous letters. Um, and I mean, I mean, that was nice. I enjoy getting mail. And so thank you for that. Um, also for the basket, the fruit in my room, and um, for this gift that's right here. <laughs> I just thanked you ahead of time for that. I have really enjoyed myself here since uh, since I have uh, since I've arrived. What's really nice about um, being able to come to these conferences is because I am able to meet so many of you who I've met before. Um, as Burns said last night, Burns and Casey, um, we spoke together in Arkansas a few years ago, and for me that was my first time to speak. And uh, Burns and Casey were with me. We got stuck in Memphis for a long time, and that's why we. I got very familiar with Mud Island because they had missed their plane and the host and I had to wait for them <laughs> to arrive and I thought, oh, this is Mansion and I saw Mud Island and I saw the Peabody and I said all these things. Um, so it was important for me because for me it was the first time that I ever spoke outside of Cincinnati and also because we got lost in the Ozarks for a number of hours and we had <laughs> more or less cemented our relationship. Um, and friends from Cincinnati that are here, uh, it's good to see. I've enjoyed Dixie's. Uh, leads so much today. There's something that, as an Al-Anon that I always get out of AA leads, um, women leads particularly because we have so much in common, I believe, as women. Um, men AA leads because for me it helps me understand not only how the disease has affected me, because I think we're affected in similar ways, but also because it helps me understand, accept, and forgive those alcoholics that I have known in my life. Um, so I'm glad to be here. I will say that um, a week ago, some fellow called me from North Dakota and asked me if I'd speak out there next year, and I said that I would, and then he said, oh, and you also have to do a workshop. And I said, a workshop? A workshop? I can't do a workshop. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't know anything. I, I don't know anything to give a workshop. I only know, I only know what happened to me and how this program has saved my life. That's all I know. I can't give a workshop. He said, well, last year, Alan, I made that workshop on sexuality. I'm guaranteeing that that's not the one I'm going to be giving. <laughs> so I guess I'm just here to say that I really don't know. All I know is, is uh, how it was for me, what happened, and how it is for me today um, in my own life. Um, I was raised in a family that was close-knit, um, and they're still close family. There was no active uh, alcoholism in my family, although um, there were a number of distant relatives who drank a lot. Nobody ever called them alcoholics. They were just considered to be Irish drunks. That's what we call them. Well, that's an Irish drunk. Um, <clears throat> I believe that my grandfather probably had a problem, but I don't know that for sure. I just, you know, just what I hear about him sounds very familiar to what I hear in uh, AA Leeds, but I'm no expert, so... I do know that there were things that were important to me growing up, uh, things that I picked up along the way. One was, um, in my family growing up at any rate, humor was very important. It wasn't that we were not allowed to have feelings when I was a kid, because we were. But being angry or feeling sorry for yourself were only tolerated for about, you know, 30 seconds. Then it was, okay, come on, get over it, it'll be fine, you'll be better, get on with it. And I adopted that, really, as a way of, of going through life. I mean, you could feel sorry and be sad or angry for just a little bit, but then, come on, you know, move on, get on with it. 
Um, I also, somewhere along the line, um, always had this sense of tragedy, although I really had a very, very happy childhood. Nothing tragic ever really happened to me, but I always had this sense of tragedy that I, in a way, still carry with me. Um, when we were coming here, for example, we cut through Kentucky, and as we were crossing the bridge over into Madison, Indiana, I thought what I always think when I crossed the bridge. What if this bridge collapses? How will I live? Could I swim? Could I make it to shore? Could I save milk? Could I do this? Could I? I mean, I always go through that. I, I just do that. I don't know why. I go to big banquets for conferences, and I look at the chandeliers, and I think, what if they fell? How many people would die? Would they be crushed? Would I be hurt? Would I be saved? Would it cause a fire? I just go through those things. I don't know what that is. I have a sense of drama, and I, uh, it's just what I have. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I also think that somewhere along the line, I believed that my, my whole family is funny. My brothers and sisters and mother and father, they're funny people. My mom and dad are like a vaudeville team. They are just funny. And whatever came along, and we have an irreverent sense of humor, whatever came along, that's how it was always dealt with. It was dealt with humor. I am very uncomfortable, uh, less so than I used to be, with, with other things. I, I like to, I'm not, I hate confrontation. I don't like, um, you know, trouble. I like to avoid it. I like things to move along, to be okay. I want everybody to be happy. And somewhere along the line, I think that I believe that I had the power to make you happy. And that it was my job to do that. So if you were feeling down, if you were, if you were um, upset, then I, then I could make that okay for you. I could, I could lighten your spirits. I could, and that was my job. I used to have a nun in grade school that used to, I mean, in high school that used to teach us joy, Jesus, others, yourself. And I believe that, that that was important, always to put yourself last. And I don't know that that's such a bad philosophy, except it got me into trouble later. It got me into trouble later because I never learned how to take care of myself. I know somebody taught that to me, but I don't think I was paying attention. I was always the kind of kid, I don't know if you remember the show Queen for a Day. I used to love to watch Queen for a Day. I'd sit there and watch it and I'd cry. And I remember my mother would come in and say, you are such a sap. Turn that off, you are such a sap. And I used to really get into those women's bit of pain and their misfortune, and I'd cry. And even today, sometimes when I'm in an Al-Anon meeting and somebody will say this, and then this happened, and then this happened, I'll think, that woman wins. She wins the stove and the refrigerator. <laughs> she wins. She's queen for a day. Um, I believe that my family, gave, my mom and dad, gave me the very best that they had. They just gave me the best that they had. What also was important for me as a kid was the church. The church was a powerful force in my life, um, and it was a powerful force in my parents' life, too. I was taught that you did what you were told to do, and that's just the way it was. Um, it just didn't matter. You just followed the rules and did what you were supposed to do. And somewhere along the line, I believe that that is why God loved me, because I did what I was supposed to do. I was a good kid. Um, now, that's not to say that I... That's not to say that I didn't enjoy trouble, because I did, but only if I wasn't going to get caught. I was always attracted to those kids who got into trouble. I always admired those kids that took chances and who broke the rules because I never would. I always tell people that if Saddam Hussein had been a foreign exchange student, I would have wanted to date him. I just like that kind of person, you know? I also like the kind of person and I'm attracted to the kind of person. Just this past week, I took my son to the doctor and we were leaving. I said to him, I like that doctor. And he said, why? And I said, because he's definite. And he said, why do you like definite people? And I said, because I'm not. 
Because I'm not definite, you know, I'm always, well, yeah, I can help, yeah, well, yeah. And I'm always attracted to people who say, who say, this way it is. You know, simple. This is the way it is. Because I'm not that way. And so when I met my husband, he was a very definite person who broke a lot of rules, and I liked that. You see, for me, it was always important how things looked. How things looked, you know? I mean, how is that going to look? I don't know where they came from. But that's what I, that's what I picked up. How things look was important. What I really was attracted to in my husband was that he didn't care how things looked. He didn't care. He only spoke the truth, and if that hurt your feelings, well, too bad. Me, I would never say anything to hurt your feelings. I would lie before I would hurt your feelings, and I was very good at that. I could be very, very sincere and be dishonest because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. So, I, I, when I met my husband, he was um, in training to become a pilot in the Marine Corps, something, of course, I would never want to do. And, I, you know, he was just exciting. He was a lot of wonderful things. And, you know, sometimes I, I have lost sight of that. This past uh, few weeks when I went to visit, I took my kids on vacation, and along the way I stopped to visit sisters and brothers who live um, east, and I started, of course, started for myself. You know, I look at my mom and dad, and such a nice marriage, and I look at my sister, and, you know, and her, and she and her husband, and my other sister, she and her husband, and my brother, and then I think, what happened to me? Why, why did they all pick these nice, sane people? Why did I pick it? And then I have to remind myself, but when I was 21, and I, when my husband was 25, when we met, alcoholism hadn't taken the toll that it did later. My husband was a lot of wonderful things. Um, he, he was a lot of wonderful things. But the disease came upon both of us, and things changed for us. Um, when I uh, decided to marry my husband, I, I did so really almost in, in a strange sort of way. We were having dinner in his house. He made this announcement that we were going to get married. I didn't know he was going to make that announcement, and I went along with it. Now, that just seems so strange for me today, but you know, that's the way I did things. That's just the way I did things. I just thought, well, you know, yeah, we probably were. Oh, I guess this will work out. Yeah, this will be fine. I can do that. But, you know, really, I just didn't want to embarrass him. I really just didn't want to embarrass him in front of his family. So what I did was I always changed, you know, changed things so it would work in my benefit. I never really liked to take responsibility for decisions, so I was always ready to let you make you make the decisions. Uh, and then when you screwed up, of course, I blamed you. That's the way that I used to work. But I always had a sense that things were always going to turn out. Things would always work out, because that had been true through my whole life. Things always worked out. I always came out of things smelling like a rose. And I just assumed that that was going to happen, magically. My husband had a bad temper, but I used to think that that would all be taken care of once we were married. Because while we dated, he was, you know, either in, in Pensacola, Florida, Meridian, Mississippi. I was in Cincinnati, and then later in Chicago teaching school. And I just assumed a lot of this uh, anger and, and, and fighting was due to distance and lack of communication. I was just sure once we were married, and he lived with a nice kid like me, it would be fine. He wouldn't be angry anymore. What would he have to be angry for? You know, he would just be so grateful. He got me. Well, I don't think that sounds very good then. I just thought that's the way it was supposed to be. It would just work out. I knew I was in trouble quickly. Um, we'd only been married uh, not even two weeks when um, time we were, he was stationed in Havelock, North Carolina, at Cherry Point Marine Air Force Station, and we were living in a trailer. Actually, he'd been living in a trailer, and I just moved in with him uh, once we were married. And uh, I always tell the story because it just typifies what happened for the next 12 and a half years. He was away flying. We received a gift in the mail, a wedding gift. It was glassware packed in straw. I opened it, took out the glassware, took the box, threw it in the garbage can, you know, made somewhat of a mess. 
And when he came home, I said, we got a gift. And he said, did you open it? And I said, yeah. And he said, was it addressed to both of us? I said, yeah. And he said, don't you know it's against federal regulations to open somebody else's mail? Well, you know, I thought that was weird. I thought that was really strange. But my next thought was, well, maybe you're just going to have to learn to be married. Maybe these are things that when you're married, you do together. Maybe you just have to learn to stop being so selfish. Then he said, there's straw over the yard. You know, you need to pick it up. Well, there again, you know, I thought, oh, who cares? I mean, we live in a trailer. Camp, not even a park. I mean, it was a camp. But I thought, well, you know, we've only been married 11, 12 days. I, I, I want to start out on a good foot. So I went and picked up all that straw. When I came back, we couldn't get in the door because it had been locked. And, you know, and I knocked, and, you know, Ricky, it's your bride. And he said, you missed some. Well, that's, that's just about did it for me. I mean, then I thought, well, you know, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. There's no way. So I left. And I'm in North Carolina, and all I got, you know, is my, is an apron. I mean, my clothes and my apron. And where was I going to go? So I just walked down the highway. Uh, there was a furniture store open. There wasn't much in Havelock, North Carolina at that time. But there was a furniture store that was open, and I walked in this furniture store. I didn't even have a purse with me. And I remember so clearly what I felt, because it is what I would feel for the next 12 and a half years until I found you. And that was, I felt tremendous confusion. I simply could not understand what was going on. I knew that whatever it was, it wasn't normal. I also knew that it was something big. It was something serious. And that scared me. Because I know me, and I can tell a joke. But boy, I can't fix something like that. I am no professional. And I knew I was in over my head. And that scared me. It scared me to death. And those feelings stayed with me for the next 12 and a half years. I was just scared for a long time. Because I was I knew I was up against something that was bigger than me. And it frightened me because I knew it was a bad thing. I also was angry. I wasn't angry so much at him as I was angry at me because I didn't know what to do. My first instinct, quite frankly, was to get out of there, just leave. But, you know, I was stopped by what I would be stopped by for a long time, and that was, how would that look? I've been married 12 days. How's that going to look to arrive back in Cincinnati after 12 days of marriage? I mean, that's me, you know? I knew I couldn't do that, so I went back, and I picked up the straw, and he opened the door, and that was that. Now, things like that didn't happen all the time. But that fear that I felt, that panic, that sense that I was in over my head, that confusion, and I'm always wondering, what, what do you do with this? Never left me. It never left me until I found you. Um, <clears throat> we were not married very long before my husband got his orders to go to Vietnam. We always knew that that was coming somewhere along the line. Um, in the meantime, um, you know, life went on. I, I, I was, I was confused. I was scared. I was angry, but I put on a pretty good front. You know, I learned to become a pretty good actress. I also learned, unfortunately, to become dishonest to myself and to others because that's the only thing that I knew to do. We would go to a lot of parties. There was a lot of drinking at that time. I guess there still is in the military among, I don't know, gosh, the people that flew, they seem to drink a lot. I, I don't know. I mean, my husband's drinking didn't stand out, really, among that group, but it just seemed that when he drank, he got mean. So what I would do is that I would watch how much he drank because I just believed that if I could keep an eye on him, and watch how much he drank, and I'd know how to act. And I always wanted to do that. I would always wait to see 
see how he was, and then I would decide how I was going to be. My whole life was one, married life was one of reaction. Wait to see what kind of mood he's in, and then I'll decide what kind of mood I'm going to be in. I heard a woman say one time, and it's true, boy, alcoholism really takes the spontaneity out of things, and it did. I, I was too afraid to be spontaneous. I had to wait to see how things were before I felt free to act in a certain way, because otherwise it would, be, it would just be, get too scary. I would be too afraid. I found myself doing things that I really was ashamed of. I would get into a car with somebody that had been drinking. I teach school every Friday, I say to my students, goodbye, have a nice weekend, don't get into a car with somebody that drinks. I say that all the time to them. I knew that back then, but I was too afraid not to get into a car with somebody. It was, it was less frightening for me to crash than to say, I'm not going home with you. You're drinking. Because then I'd have to ask somebody for a ride home. And how would that look? You know, my pride ego got in my way so much, even back then. How would that look? I mean, it would be disloyal, it would be this, it would be that. So I would get into a car with him and put a seatbelt on and keep a rosary in my pocket and pray my way home. And I learned not to say anything about his going 90 miles an hour uh, on those back roads of, of North Carolina, because if I mentioned it, he'd go 120. So I kept my mouth closed, and I thought that was a very intelligent thing to do at the time. <laughs> Eventually, my husband got his orders to go to Vietnam, and oh my God, he's so relieved. Now, that's a very strange situation for a new bride to be in, because I'm with other women, you know, whose husbands also are being shipped off in the squadron, and they are heartsick, and I'm not. I'm so glad he's going to go, because I know I need a break from all this tension and fear. And of course, I am the type that believes that I know everything, and that I was the keeper of truth and justice, and so I would tell him, you know, about the immorality of the Vietnam War before he was ready to go fight the war. I thought that was brilliant. He would say, I'm not sleeping with a communist, and he would go into the living room and sleep on the couch and turn on. He'd sleep by Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. And I thought he was going to try crazy. And I, of course, could never understand what was the problem, what was wrong with him. You know, I, so quickly I got into the habit of looking at his behavior and watching him, and the whole focus was on him. Never on me, never on me. He was bizarre, I wasn't. He was doing strange things, I wasn't. That started almost from the beginning, for me. So anyway, he got his orders to go to Vietnam, and I was relieved, and he left, and oh, I just thought to myself, you know, if I could only get away from it for a while, maybe I can figure it out. If I could only get some distance from this, maybe I can figure this out. I spent a lot of years just trying to figure things out, thinking that, of course, if I could only unlock that key, I could fix it. I could fix it. If I could only figure out what was going on, I could fix it. And people would say to me, oh boy, that's tougher, you know, you poor, you poor thing, new husband in Vietnam. And I would say, yeah, it's really tough. But you worry about him, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I really didn't worry about him. I didn't worry about him, number one, because he really was an excellent pilot. I also didn't worry about him because those kind of guys never get shut down. <laughs> so I was a nice little farm boy from Indiana who loved their mothers. Those are the ones that end up, you know, getting shut down, not this kind. But I would, you know, I, I, I used to believe, and I, oh, and I always say this too, and it's really not easy for me to say, but this is how quickly, uh, this is how quickly I got scared and how badly I got scared. I used to think it would be a good thing, perhaps, if he were captured. And not killed, certainly, but at least tortured. Because I believe that maybe that would just knock some sense into him, and that perhaps he would have a spiritual experience that would change him, and he would come back different. But that didn't happen. And so my own disease continued, that living with fear, that always, you know, testing the waters, losing spontaneity, 
pretending to you that everything was just fine. Everything was just perfect. You know, we were just having so much fun. The military was great. On and on. And none of it was true. I was scared to death. And my self-image and my self-esteem just took a nosedive. And it took a nosedive because I believed that some of it, if I, because I couldn't figure it out. It took a nosedive because I couldn't figure it out. And I lived in fear. I always felt like a dog with, a, with its tail between its, with its tail between its legs. I always felt that way. You know? I mean, really. I, there were so many times when I wanted to pick up a frying pan and just crack him over the head. But I would never do that. That's just not the way I do things. I would do a, a beginner's meeting at a detox center for um, families of uh, clients. And I was there one time not so long ago. And, uh, you know, I gave him a little thing about how alcohol affected me and how I got sick and on and on and on. This one woman said, my husband's drinking never bothered me. And I said, oh, he didn't? <laughs> she said, no. And I said, well, gee, how was that? <laughs> she said, I can't say what she said. But she said, well, every time he came in the house, I just picked up a knife and said, get the, the heck away from me. And then he go up to his room and he never bothered me again. And I thought, <laughs> That is simply not who I, I could never have done that in 1970, and then I could have walked on water. It just isn't what and who I am. Nope. I just, you know, pretended like everything was okay, and just with the resentments and the anger and fear mushrooms. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. That's, that's the frightening part for me. I had no idea what was going on, and still thought somehow that I could fix it. Um, eventually, my husband decided to go to dental school, and right before he went to dental school in Columbus, Ohio, uh, at Ohio State, he and a Marine Corps buddy went over to Newport, Kentucky, and just got beaten badly by a bouncer. He hadn't had plastic surgery, and he didn't drink again for three years. The whole three years we were in Columbus, Ohio. Those were three good years, not just because he didn't drink, but because at the same time we were involved in a marriage group, you know, and we, husband, we would go around giving weekends to couples. <laughs> But, you know, that we did okay. I mean, God works through our defects, and we did okay. And I thought, this is great. This is great. Whatever this was before, it's okay now. Whatever it was, maybe it was just a period of adjustment. But now things are good. Oh, I just sailed through those three years. I was so delighted with myself, because I was sure it was something that I had done. I was just so, you know, I was delighted. As soon as those three years were up, when we came back to Cincinnati and he started his practice, things changed like night and day. It was like Jekyll and Hyde. And here I was again, not understanding what had happened. All I knew that I was living again with fear, being afraid to make a move, being afraid to say something, always watching, always, you know, watching myself. Now, what I found out happened was that my husband started to drink secretly and we started to use drugs. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought he was going crazy. I thought he was going crazy, and I got scared. And this is where my perfectionism kicked in. I hear a lot of talk in Al-Anon about perfectionism, and that's something I never understood, because I don't consider myself a perfectionist. But I am when it comes to, to relationships. I am when it comes to trying to be a good wife, trying to be a good friend, trying to be a good mother. That's where my perfectionism kicks in. And I was so devastated because I believed that if I just was a good enough wife, and if I was just patient enough and loyal enough, things should work out. And when they didn't, I was devastated. Eventually, the renew agents uh, caught on to my husband who started to write prescriptions for himself. 
He's an honest guy. You know, he used his own name and everything. He used his own name, shoes, sign, the same person. They caught him, arrested him, threw him out of dentistry. Oh, I was so relieved. Thank God, it's just a drug addiction. I thought he was crazy. <laughs> you see, at the time, I thought, well, great, quit taking drugs, and we'll just go back to the way it was in Columbus. This will be wonderful. But of course, as you know, that's not the way it worked. Things got bad, and, and then that was followed by years of unemployment and, and laying around the house. And that's when I got the sex, because that's when I was most afraid. We had a bunch of kids, and nobody was working, and we were borrowing money to live, and it was a, you know, hand-to-mouth existence, and that scared me. I used to spend hours crying because I was thinking that when I was 65, there would be no social security, and I would be a bag lady, and how would I support myself? And how would that look when I was in downtown Cincinnati pulling cabbage leaves out of garbage cans, and my friends, I knew, would be going by in mink coats, I was sure, and they would see me. And poor Kathy, whatever happened to her? She had such a good beginning. You know, I mean, I used to think about these things and blow them up with my sense of drama in my mind, and I mean, I would just cry all the time. I was scared to death. I tried very hard not to let my kids in on this, but of course, of course they saw this. Because I wasn't sitting around reading Mother Goose. I was on the phone smoking cigarettes to friends, you know, trying, and his family, trying to figure out what had gone wrong and what could I do. I said, I was thought that if I could just figure it out, I could fix it. And things just got worse. We were living at the time on a family estate, really. We lived in a beautiful home with a pool in our backyard, tennis courts, stables overlooking the Ohio River, and we were broke. I mean, if you opened my closet, it was all black and white, generic food. I mean, cans of things that said green beans, corn. I mean, you know, no labels. It was a nutsy way to live. But if you saw us, you'd think things were great. You would think things were great. And when people would say to me, gee, why'd your husband get up dentistry? I would say, well, you know, he's just not really a nine-to-five guy. He's just much more adventuresome. You know, I would always make it sound so good. And I would do that with my kids, too. And they would come home from school with these, you know, those horrible forms from school that says, Father's Occupation. You know, that would frighten me, because what was I going to put down? What was I going to put down? So I'd put down independent businessman. You know, or I'd say, what businesses are the school? You know, I would always, you know, it was just so defensive. I was so afraid that any of you would see how I was living. Because then what would you think of me? How would that look? What's the matter with her? What's the matter with her? Can't she make a go of her marriage? Can't she do something about that man? Because that was my idea of how marriage should be. I mean, if your husband was a failure, whose fault is that? That's your fault. Where did I get that idea? I don't know where I got that idea, but that's what I picked up somewhere along the line. It's not fair to say that he didn't work at all because he was employed in a sense. He used to hunt foxes <laughs> and sell their furs. And sell their furs. Now, I know that that was lucrative at some time in our country's history, but not in the 1970s, 1980s. <laughs> and what was most horrible, I guess, is that he used to always bring them home and hang them outside the kitchen and skin them. So that when my kids would come home with their friends, I mean, you know, you're almost hit in the face with these hang swinging carcasses. But me, I made it sound like it was great. Come on, kids, look what Dad's doing. And I hated it. I hated it. I was so embarrassed by it. Um, sometimes he was just, uh, you know, because we lived in this, you know, somewhat, somewhat rural setting, you know, a lot of trees around, there was a big tree outside our bedroom window, there were days when he would open the window 
uh, in our bedroom that sat right by the tree, and he would keep a gun. There was a lot of guns around. He would keep a gun by the bed so that if he were napping or laying around, he would just reach behind, you know, reach behind, grab that gun, and shoot whatever was in that tree. He was a very good marksman. But my reaction to that is, you see, I would run outside to say to the kids, don't play on this side of the house today. Dad's hunting. Take all your friends and go on this side of the house. Now that's bizarre, but see, I didn't think that it was because I was just trying to make adjustments all along the way for all of this behavior so it looked okay to you. So it looked okay to you, so you wouldn't know what I was living with and the fear that I was living with because I was afraid you'd think less of me if you knew how afraid I was. I was afraid you'd think less of me if you knew that I just simply didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. But I never could say that. I never could say that. I didn't think it was okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. And the day that has changed for me as a teacher, my kids will say, well, what about the blah, And I'll say, I don't know. And they'll say, what do you mean you don't know? You're the teacher. And I'll say, I don't know. And I feel great about being able to say that. Because years ago, I would have made something up. Some days I still do. But a lot of days I don't. <laughs> so at any rate, but my kids, you know, it was my kids. You know, I was just trying to to protect them from this. I was always trying to reinterpret the reality of their lives for them. You know, because there were so many guns around, I mean, we had, we lived in a place where suburbs were, were encroaching on our little estate, and all these people who were not insane were moving in, which was so hard for me. And a lot of them would let their kids play at my house. I used to call them the Stepford Wives. Oh, the Stepford Wives won't let their children play at our house. But you know why they wouldn't? Because we have leg hold traps around our house, you know? And I, and I used to say to the kids, oh, you walk in it, open it up, you'll be fine, get a little bruised, so what? I was always downplaying really big things. We used to have um, a pet bird that my husband had trained. Um, he was really such a talented person, such a talented person. One of the kids found a wounded bird, he trained the thing. He trained the thing to land in a tree and to come down. He trained this goofy bird. He even named it. A lot of time in his hands. But we were one day at the swimming pool behind the house, and the bird was with him on his shoulder and would perch on the fence when I, you know, the kids and I would all take all the kids swimming and stuff. And there was a cat in the yard. And my husband said to me, get rid of that cat. I can't get rid of the cat. I mean, I'm a wimp. What am I? So I went to the cat and said, you know, shoot, shoot cat, shoot cat. That's all I did. I mean, that's, I'm just a really ineffective person when it comes to that stuff. Shoot cat, just get away from cat. Well, of course, the cat didn't go away at all. And the cat's sitting there now, jumped down the little step, and Rick and I are there with all the kids in the pool, and all of a sudden, that cat came out of that bush and took that bird. I mean, just like that. Chomp. Fit it right in the <laughs> My first thought was, Oh my God, now I'm going to get in trouble. I mean, you know, I was in my 30s, and that's always what I thought. Oh my God, now I'm going to get in trouble. That's how I, that's how I live. Oh my God, now I'm going to get in trouble. My husband shot up out of that pool with a primal scream, ran into the house, and the next time we saw him, I had all these little kids there with me. He had a gun over his shoulder, a big gun. And he said, yeah, kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> so I said, what I always did, I said to the kids, come on, come on. Join hands, we're going to have a tea party. And I took them underwater because I did not want them to see this. I did not want them to hear it. I didn't want them to see it. And that is what I always did. In one way or another, I was always clutching my kids and taking them underwater so they wouldn't see or hear, but I didn't want them to see or hear. And I really thought I had done a bang-up job. Today I know that <laughs> my kids were so much smarter than I ever gave them credit for. I didn't know that. 
See, I was just always moving so quickly, always thinking, always planning. I was exhausting myself. Finally, thank God, a member of this little family estate joined AA. And she screwed everything up for everybody. I mean, she just screwed it all up. That was the end of that. No more game. I mean, she just, she got in, her sister got in, this sister got in. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by all these women in AA. God. And to tell you, just between you and me, there wasn't anything worse as far as I was concerned. Because they all ended up in my kitchen, and they're all talking about alcoholism, and they're all talking about disease, and on and on. And I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear it. I was in a prayer group. That was enough for me. I didn't want to hear it. I thought I was doing just fine. I was happy for them, but I didn't want to do anything. And they started talking about Al-Anon. And their husbands were in Al-Anon. I didn't want to go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon, please. See, in my family where I was growing up, when I was growing up, you don't talk about this stuff. You just go, you know, you just do it. My mother would always say, be gracious. And, and you just did it. You didn't talk about it. You didn't run to groups and all that stuff. I mean, that was for weak people. It wasn't for us. We didn't do that. We also were never an emotional family. I don't know why that is. We just were not big huggers. We weren't big this or big that. So, Aaron, forget that. I mean, forget that. But I just now am surrounded by recovery. And it's hard to stay out when you're around it. I'm tried, you know. But the other thing was that I was just tired. Because I felt that all these years it was me. I was the one that was running to the priest. I was the one, one that was running to the social workers. I was the one that was running to the psychiatrists and the psychologists. And I wasn't even sick. So I thought, why me? Now, now I'm supposed to go to something else? Forget it. If he's sick, let him go somewhere. I'm not going somewhere. I'd been that route. I'd even been to a psychic. Psychic cost me $1.50. She told me that the whole family was suffering from a disease and she saw help in the basement of churches. That's true. <laughs> not, that I, not that I would recommend psychics, but that's just what happened to me. Yeah, I, just, I was just resentful of the whole thing. I was just resentful of the whole thing and was not interested. But I'll tell you what. I had a lot of kids, and they start talking about it being in the family for generations, and that scared me. Because at the time, I was pregnant with our seventh child, and I thought to myself, you know, if this thing goes from generation to generation, I could be living with this for a long time. And I always had what I talk about my eight-year plan, and that is that women outlive men usually by four years, and I was four years older than my husband. I mean, four years younger than my husband. So I always, I always look forward to those eight years at the end of my life. Or, you know, that would be peaceful. So I wouldn't have to, you know, wouldn't have to wash my step, wouldn't have to make sure, you know, the gas was filled all the way to the top, wouldn't have to hold down both ends of the bacon when I was frying it, you know, I would just, I would just be peaceful. Let me throw my clothes on the floor, leave my tea bag in the sink, you know, all those things that light a match because nobody was bothered by the smell of sulfur, all those things that used to drive me crazy. Those eight years would be great. But now they're talking about this disease being the family and being passed on from generation to generation. And my eight-year plan is in jeopardy, so I am afraid. So I think to myself, maybe I ought to go and just find out. Just listen in one of these Al-Anon things. So that's what I did. I went. And the first time, I can tell you, the first meeting that I ever went to an Al-Anon was a beginner's meeting. The very first time, the very first meeting, I felt better right away. I felt better. And my experience was that I got better and better and better. It was a relief for me to finally go somewhere where somebody had a clue 
as to what I was talking about. Because I had been to a lot of places and spent a lot of time with friends and family. Nobody, nobody ever had a clue as to what was going on any more than I did. I had social workers that would say, you have to learn to speak in I statements. Please. And you know, as I was being told that, I knew that I wasn't going to do it. I tried it. I would go home and say, I, I hate you. I think you're a slob. I, I didn't work. I statements didn't cut it. But here I am, and I'm at this place, and I'm listening to these people talk about exactly what I felt. I heard them talk about things I didn't even know, hadn't even acknowledged what I was feeling. My very first beginner's meeting, a woman said to me, you know, and I was so, I wasn't sure if I should really be there, and maybe I was, you know, what an awful thing to accuse someone of being, and you know, or maybe I was being disloyal, and this and that. And this woman said to me, is your husband's drinking ever caused a problem in your life? I said, well, yeah. She said, then you are where you are supposed to be because this program is for you. It's not for him, it's for you. And I was told that at my very first meeting, and I have never been anywhere where it's been different. That was the emphasis, that this was for me, nobody else, that I needed to recover from this disease of alcoholism, no matter what anybody else was doing. I had gotten sick, and I needed to be there for me. And that was given to me as soon as I walked in the door. She also told me that alcoholism was a disease that I didn't cause, couldn't cure, and couldn't control. Never thought I caused it in a million years. I never thought that I caused it. Always, always thought that I should be able to cure it. Always thought that I should be able to cure it because I was always, always believed that love conquered all. I just believed that. And when that didn't work, something I felt was wrong with me. At some level, something was wrong with me because nobody else I knew was running into the situations I was running into. It must be something that I was doing wrong. Um, she also told me that alcoholism was a family disease, and that was important. Um, and she said it was like, you know, it's like uh, diabetes. Uh, you know, and I, I always love to tell people that I work with a high school group of kids um, from alcoholic homes, and one of my seniors said to me a couple of years ago, I hate when they say alcoholism is like diabetes. And I said to her, Katie, what would you rather have it compared to? And she said, I wish they'd say alcoholism was like rabies, because that's what it's like. <laughs> and you know, just as you know, the speakers have already said, it just takes us all, you know, as Burns was saying, it just takes all of us. It's very democratic. You know, it got me, it, it started with my husband, but boy, I'll tell you, it sure got me and got everybody else in one way or another. And I needed to recover from that. And that's what I heard in my very first meeting. And then I went out to sit with men and women like yourselves who were living a different way than I was, who were living like they had choices. And that's one thing I never knew I had, that I have a choice. I always thought that I was doing what I was doing because I had to. What else could I do? I had to. You taught me I didn't have to. I could do many other things. You gave me some wonderful phrases that were important to me right off the bat, one of which was, one of which was, um, let go and let God, that I did not have to take. I was not responsible for everything that was happening in my home, and I thought that I was. And so I learned to let go, bit by bit. Now, at first for me, that meant don't do anything at all. And that's what I did. My, my kids were running loose. I didn't fix dinner, didn't clean the house. I just let it all go. I thought, I'll let go. I'll figure that out. I'm not going to worry about that. Who cares? It was wonderful. And eventually, of course, I learned, you know, what I was responsible for and what I wasn't. And I'm still learning that. You also taught me the phrase, you could be right. You could be right. You told me I didn't have to stand there and, and change everybody's uh, thinking. That I was only responsible for my own attitude and my own thinking. And so that was a new thing for me. And so when I would go home or when I would be with my husband and he would start, you know, he would say something that I disagreed with. Instead of jumping in and arguing like I always would do and spend all that time and energy, I just simply would say, 
He could be right and walk away. And I mean, I, you see, then I had all this time and energy to do things that I wanted to do instead of wasting it all trying to change another person and somebody else's thinking. That was a wonderful gift. It was a wonderful gift that I was given early on in this program. Um, I always believed when I was growing up that there was a kind of woman that I wanted to become. And I was lucky enough to have a lot of good role models, you know, my grandmothers, my mother, sisters. I had a lot of really good role models, women who I believed to be generous and compassionate and just and loving. Um, and alcoholism took those dreams away from me because I had become a woman that I did not like, that I did not respect. I was petty, I was self-pitying, I was small-minded, I was scared, I was backed up, I never stood up for myself. It robbed me of those dreams. Helen I has restored for me, in many ways, the dreams that I once had. In uh, April of this year, I was out in uh, Montana, and I was at one of these banquet things. I happened to be sitting next to a man in AA, and um, I don't know, the waitress came out and gave us all a plate of food, and he didn't get a plate. So I said, are, are you not eating? And he said, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. And I said, do you want my vegetables? And he said, well, you're sure in the right program. <laughs> and I won't tell you what I thought. <laughs> I thought, what is this? What is this? That all of a sudden when you're recovering, it means you just, you know, you hoard everything for yourself? That's not my idea of recovery. I didn't get into this program to become selfish. I get in this program to become the kind of woman that I believe that God calls me to be. And for me, that involves sharing my food. Well, sharing my vegetables. I didn't offer my dessert. But I certainly was going to share my lima beans with him. <laughs> you know, I mean, I run into that sometimes. I was with a good friend of mine who's uh, in the program, and we were at a restaurant not so long ago. Oh, my God, the air conditioning was turned up to 30 degrees. She had a coat on, and I said, man, I'm freezing. She said, I'm not. She said, I've got a coat. I'll offer it to you, but I don't want you to think that I'm sick. And I said, Carol, I wouldn't think that you were sick. I would think that you were generous. Give me a face. I mean, I, you know, my idea of recovery is once more I'm restored to sanity. Once more I'm restored to that dream and to that call, the kind of woman I really believe that God wants me to be. And see, I've lost that. You know, alcoholism just really hollowed me out. It just paralyzed me with fear. You know, I mean, I went into that sometimes. I was with a good friend of mine who's uh, in the program, and we were at a restaurant not so long ago. Oh, my God, the air conditioning was turned up to 30 degrees. She had a coat on, and I said, man, I'm freezing. She said, I'm not. She said, I've got a coat. I'll offer it to you, but I don't want you to think that I'm sick. And I said, Carol, I wouldn't think that you were sick. I would think that you were generous. You were Really? I mean, I, you know, my idea of recovery is once more I'm restored to sanity, once more I'm restored to that dream and to that call, the kind of woman I really believe that God wants me to be. And see, I've lost that. You know, alcoholism just really hollowed me out. It just paralyzed me with fear. And I, I just was, you know, I was just always just scared of him. Um, I know that there are a lot of things that I don't understand about the way God works. You know, as I said earlier, there are things that happen that I don't get. I think there's a lot of chaos in the world. I don't know that this world, you know, God is completely finished with, with his job of creation. There are things that I don't understand still. I don't understand why young people have to get sick and die. And I, I don't understand, you know, why so many people starve in a, in a world of, of plenty. 
I don't understand why God would send me three boys at the end of the line. His teenage years will coincide with my menopause, probably. I don't understand why that would happen. And because I don't understand a lot of things, I know that I have a choice of, you know, living with hope or living with despair. And today, really, because of your example, I choose to live with hope. And so every day when I wake up, I start my day out on my knees, saying the third step prayer. Probably the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, actually, and turn my life a little over to the care of God as I understand God. And it makes a big difference for me in the way that I live my life. I have not, you know, as I said earlier, I don't really know anything more than anybody else. But I know this, that this program has made changes in my life and it works. I still have a long way to go. I still have a long way to go. I shared with something at my home group not so long ago, a real painful thing that I had, and I was afraid again, and I'd made decisions based on fear. And after the meeting, this one friend of mine came up and said, God, I'm so disappointed in you. You are my hero. And I said, well, whose fault is that? I mean, it's you. Give me a break. I am learning as I go along. There's a, you know, I have a lot of distance before I achieve that dream. But, you know, I really feel like I'm on my way. There isn't a lot that frightens me or terrifies me anymore because I believe in a God who will do for me what I cannot do for myself. That first step prayer is important for me. I used to have an idea about the way I thought my life should be. Honestly, last night when I was sitting out there and I looked up at this AA conference and I thought, I never, when I was 15, 16 years old, <laughs> thought I'd be sitting at an AA conference in Indiana. I mean, nothing against Indiana. I mean, anywhere, you know? In a million years, what and how did I get, you know? And my life is just not what I thought it was going to be. Thank God, because I would have shortchanged myself all along the way. All along the way. Nothing really changed me, however, until I, I, I got a sponsor and I did a fourth step. Nothing really changed for me until I did those two things. That's when I knew I was on my way. I really mean it. That's when I felt like I'd put my track shoes on and I was ready to go. But I couldn't have done that unless I had done those first three steps first. My sponsor still to this day, and I have the same one that I've had for the last 11 years, has done nothing but guided me, shared her own strength, hope, and experience, and I have been able to enjoy the fruits of her recovery. Um, that fourth step for me was when I became responsible for my own disease. It's when I began to take a look at me. And I'll tell you something. I'm very picky about the Alamo meetings that I go to. I, what I do is, I've said this, but I, I, I pay attention to the pronouns I hear. When I hear he, she, they... I don't show up again. I like to go to meetings where I hear I. You know, I don't care about anybody else's, you know, husband, wife, son, daughter. I like to hear about how you're living this program in your own life. That's how I grow. And that's what I believe it's about. But I really can't do that because I don't believe until I have come to that point where I'm beginning to take responsibility for this disease in me and have done an honest full step. I have since that time taken more than one. But that first one, I'll tell you what was important for me because I was really sincere about it and I gave it the best shot that I had. I really did, but it was one of the first times in all those years that I had put the focus back on me and began to see, you know, what my, you know, my anger, my resentments, my fears, and my part in this whole thing. I had never seen that before, ever. I used to always say to people, if my husband and I were on trial, I'd be acquitted and he'd get the chair. And you know, when I did a fourth step, I just saw that that wasn't true. I had done all sorts of things that I, I, I simply had never seen before. I had just never seen before. But recovery gave me that grace to see the truth as best as I could see it then. And for me, you know, that fifth step was, a, you know, if, if I found myself in the fourth step, you know, the freedom that I got in the fifth step of admitting that to myself, to God, and another human being. It was just a big, it was just a big for me corner that I turned in this program because then I felt like I was really on my way 
for me to becoming a better human being, no matter what anybody else was doing. And I know today that I, you know, it is not me, that if what I do in cooperation with the power greater than myself, that all I can do is become entirely ready to have God remove those defects of character. And I become entirely ready, really, through your example, because when I fear you and when I am with you, you have what I want. And you make me, through your example and your sharing, you make me entirely ready. You make me see those things that continue to be obstacles in my recovery. And all I know to do is to humbly ask God to remove them from me when it's time. I heard somebody say once, God seems to take a long, long time because God is very, very old. And I believe that. Sometimes things don't happen as quickly as I want them to before they always happen when they're supposed to. And I need to keep coming back to keep myself, you know, remindful of those things that I do not have the powers, just as said so beautifully this morning. But God does. And I believe that if I'm honest, open, and willing, that God will do for me what I can't do for myself. I don't know how to make myself brave, but I'll tell you what, there have been times in my life where I needed to be strong for just 60 seconds, and God has granted me that strength. Just 60 seconds I needed it, and I got it. Then the next day I was a coward again, but who cares? When I needed it, it was there for me, and that has been true in my life. When I had to make a list of people that I had harmed, that was tough for me, because you see, I never really thought that I harmed anybody. I mean, I run with a lot of people, um, or when I came in, I guess when I ran with a lot of people who would say, well, let's see now, I'll probably have to make amends for shoplifting, and then I stole that guy's car, and I, and I think, wait a minute, what is it that I need to make amends for? Because for me, I, I see today that what I need to make amends for is how I operate in relationships. That's mainly what I need to make amends for, is how I operate in relationships. I never really thought that I hurt anybody. But I can see through my dishonesty, through my fear, I made a lot of decisions that did hurt people. And I've become entirely ready to make amends. Um, my sponsor has always told me that I need to take care of myself, which is, again, something that I never did very well. And when I did, I felt badly about it. New behavior causes me to feel guilty. But eventually, if I keep practicing it, it begins to feel comfortable to me. I needed to take care of myself. And she told me that the best amends I could make to my kids was to recover. And so I went to meetings. Even when I didn't think that maybe I should be leaving them again, and then I would go to meetings with that thought in mind. The best amends I could make to my children was to recover. I heard a woman, a woman speak once who said, direct amends does not mean a direct apology. It means direct amends. And so I had to change things. I had to get out of the middle of that relationship between my husband and kids. I was always in the middle, being the referee, being the interpreter. Dad didn't mean that. This is what he meant. Oh, the kids didn't mean that. This is what they meant. Oh, I mean, always covering, always in the middle, like the referee. I needed to step out of that. Not only for my good, but for their good. For their good. Um, I needed to, I mean, I, I began to see that as I became more honest and accepting of my situation, I was more willing to share that with friends. I had isolated myself in many ways because it was just getting to be, when I was sick, it was just too much effort to lie and to put on a brave face. So I, it was easier just to let go of a lot of those relationships. It was just easier for me, and I began to see that when I was honest, I could, those relationships were restored. I was very lucky for that. Not so long ago, a friend of mine came, well, actually, about seven years ago, a woman came to my door, a friend of mine, and she said, I think my husband's alcoholic, and I said, well, why don't you come to an Al-Anon meeting with me and see if it's helpful. And I took her to an Al-Anon meeting, and afterwards she said, no, he's not an alcoholic. And I said, well, you could be right. Let's change mind, give me a call, we'll go to another meeting. Well, last year, well, not even a whole year, some months ago, she's back on my porch. He's an alcoholic, I know he's an alcoholic. And she said to me, I'm not sure what to do now. I don't know if I should 
throw him out? Or just keep him and just make him toe the line? And I, I can understand that kind of resentment today. I said, well, you know, we don't get advice in this program. But I can only tell you what was true for me. I got really sick because I lived a life that went against everything that I was taught as a kid. I was never taught to torture sick people, because that's what I did. I was never raised that way. I was raised to be compassionate, and I was not a compassionate person. Because of my fear, I was biting, I was sarcastic, I would not talk to the man for three weeks. Now, I didn't do that purposely to hurt him. Well, sometimes I did. But for the most part, I just did it because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what else to do. So I said to her, you know, if you can live with this in recovery, that's great. If you can't, you can do what I did, and that is to live with him and torture him. But it made me real sick because I was living in such a way that I was living against everything that I had been taught to value. I was never taught to ignore somebody for three weeks, but I was doing it. I was never taught to enjoy the fact that flies were landing on his feet in the summer, but I enjoyed it. I mean, that's just what happened to me. So um, I knew that I would have to make amends to my husband, primarily because I had given him responsibility for things that he just was not responsible for, and he did not follow through. I took it out on him. One way or another, I took it out on him. It was one day I went to him. It really, it just happened to me. One day, it just like it came to me. I was ready. I was willing. And I could sincerely say to him, I am sorry. I am sorry for this. I am sorry for that. I am sorry that I burdened you with AIDS. You know? And they were primitive amends at the time. But they were, I believe, what I needed to say. Because that's exactly how I felt at the time. You know, it was about a year and a half after I came into the program that those amends were made, and it changed our relationship. All along, I have to say, since I went into Al-Anon, things began to get better and better. But with that ninth step, I think, think things really did change. It wasn't that we were, no, I mean, you know, it wasn't like we were Romeo and Juliet, but there was just a lot of tension and anger that once was there that just had really, through the grace of God, disappeared. Um, some years ago, um, on, Memor on Memorial Day weekend, my husband had a hobby of flying what they call gyrocopters. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're like helicopter. They're like a lawn chair with a blade. I mean, really, it's very dangerous, which would fit right into what my husband and all my kids love. Anything you know that can kill, maim, or mutilate. My family, they love it. So he uh, used to fly these, and one Memorial Day, uh, he went to fly. Now he's being cast. That was such a that was just such a point of contention with me. Here I got all these kids, you know, hanging on me, and there he goes up in the sky, you know, to fly and have a good time. And I'm left with all these babies and soccer games and carpool. Boy, that just made me angry. But you told me that he wasn't a bad man, he was just a sick man, and that he was doing the best that he could, and I believed you. And so that Memorial Day morning when he went to fly, the last thing that I said to him as he walked out that door was, you have a beautiful day to fly. Have a ball. And those were the last words I ever spoke to my husband because two hours later, Highway Patrol were at my door to tell me that my husband had crashed and died. Now, I don't know how I will ever, you know, how I ever will be able to pay back men and women who gave me what you gave me and my ability to live these last few years with a modicum of peace a lot of lack of resentment and anger. You gave me those good years because you allowed me to say those words. Not that if I had said other words, I still couldn't, you know, at some point um, live with it. But boy, it sure was a lot easier knowing that that's the way that it went. And that's the way that it went. I don't know why my husband was never given, you know, the gift of sobriety. Um, 
It just never, it just never happened for him. But I do know that he is, he's got it today. I know that he's got it today. And that is just simply enough for me. I have a friend that always says, one day you'll get all the answers. Well, I don't think that that's true. But you taught me how to live without all the answers. And for that, I am grateful. Shortly after my husband died, my oldest son, who was 14 at the time, got into drugs and alcohol badly and eventually had to be removed from the home. And, and I won't even go into that. But there again, you allowed me the strength to let him go and to know that he was going to get where he was going to get. And he did. You know, he just went from one place, thrown out of here, thrown out of there. And I could, you know, I had always known how to detach, but I used to detach with moral superiority. I used to detach with smugness. You taught me to detach with love. And it was only through your experience, strength, and hope that I was able to live through that because that was just right on the tail end of my husband's death that my son left us for a time. But you know, I just had a sense because of you that he was just going to be okay and because of the sponsor that constantly reminded me that my son's recovery was between him and his higher power and that if I continued to try to be my children's higher power, they would never find their higher power on their own. Thank God that I was given the grace to believe that because it has allowed me to stay out of my kids' business for the most part, for the most part. Finally, my son was picked up, thrown into jail, and I would never tell you that when I had to go claim him, when I turned and saw my son, my firstborn, walk in with his hands, you know, behind his back in a t-shirt marked 2020, which is the address of the detention, you know, in drawstring pants and socks, no shoes, no belt, you know, with this, he'd been on the run for 10 days, you know, facial hair, his straggly, dirty hair, and his breath. I can't tell you what that did to my heart. I mean, this program has not allowed me to live in an emotional plastic bubble. Well, I felt that like a knife. But what this program has allowed me to do was to be able to see hope in Matt and to believe that at some point that kid was going to be okay. And eventually he got into a program because he wanted to go into a program, not because of anything I did. He got into a program and he found AA for a time. Now he's not like AA anymore. <laughs> he thinks he's brainwashed. And I said, you know, honey, he said, I'm not an alcoholic. I was brainwashed. And I said, well, you could be right. There are a number of things. You know, I always say my kids keep me on my knees. And that is true. And I don't get in a lot of trouble when I'm on my knees. My kids through all of this, though, have become, I really believe, better people. When I used to hear that from people, I used to just cringe. But I believe today what doesn't kill you can make you stronger. And I think that is true for my children. Uh, Alateen, for those of you that sponsor Alateens, and for you know any of your children might be an Alateen, boy, that was just such a wonderful thing for my kids. None of them stuck with it long, I'll tell you that, off the top. But at least the older ones got in there for a while and learned that they were up against the disease, and it really was nothing about them. It was just something that it affected us all. I have a lot of gratitude for Alateen today. Um, my kids, you know, today, they, some of them are great, some of them are not so great, but I, but I think they're all going to get exactly what they need. And so I, you know, again, I have to love them with an open hand. I really do. My kids think I'm very strange a lot of them. They just think that I'm a weird person. And that's all right, you know. That's okay. I don't depend. Some woman said to me once, what your kids think of you is none of your business. And I believe her. I believe her. I just try to do the best that I can. Um, for me, you know, uh, staying current, doing the inventories, um, admitting when I'm wrong is important. It's just important because that's how I stay in a good place. 
I have got to discipline myself to take time out of my daily routine to pray. That's just what I have to do. And for me, I get up at the crack of dawn and I swim. At 5.15 in the morning, I go underwater for about 40 minutes and then I breathe. But I, you know, and it's just quiet under there. It's just quiet. And I just chant usually when I'm under there. I ask for healing. I ask for strength. And you know, sometimes it's just the most boring thing in the world. But sometimes things come to me. Sometimes just things come to me. I swim in a very old, old Y. And in the wall of that Y, in tile, is the saying that I see every day. It says, do not swim alone. And you know, I just believe in that. That, uh, you know, I'm in this with a lot of other people. That I am not alone. And you see, I used to feel alone a lot. Alcoholism took me into a lot of self-pity and isolation. And recovery has led me into um, compassion and companionship, for which I am very, very grateful. I have to spend that time quietly. And when I get dressed and go home, I go upstairs and I do my readings then. And I say my prayers then. And that's just as an important part of my day because it just starts me out well. And when I miss that, and there are some days when I oversleep, even my students will say, did you swim this morning? I mean, you can just tell the difference in me. There's just a difference in me when I don't take the time to do that. It is important for me. I also am great. I'm also lucky that I teach in a place where I teach because I'm allowed to, you know, pray out loud with kids. I start every class with a serenity prayer. Doesn't make sense to them. They always say, why do we say this prayer? I say, well, we say this prayer because those of you that need to go where you need to get, when you get there, you'll know what you're saying. <laughs> One time when I was somewhere in Oklahoma, a group of women walked in and they had on these sweatshirts that said, did there, been, I mean, been there, did that. I just love it. Been there, did that. Whenever I do any kind of 12-step work with recovering families, you know, and I listen, it's just so amazing to me what we all do, you know, and I always think, been there, did that. You know, all the things that we try. When I, you know, when I carry this message um, to others, when I practice these principles in all my affairs, I'm telling you, I just, I just get so much back than, than from what I ever give. And when I think of the spiritual, you know, I never really had a spiritual way. I mean, I never had like a spiritual thing that like, you know, blinding light. I've never had a vision. I never heard God talk directly to me. But I really believe that because of this program, I am far more spiritually aware of God working my life than I ever have before. I was in Indiana in the spring and I heard a woman speak and I couldn't tell you what she said. But honest to God, when she was finished, um, I went upstairs to my room and I really got on my knees and I have never been so moved. I don't know what she said. But it just became so clear to me that my recovery is something between me and the God of my understanding. And that's the relationship that's primary for me. It doesn't really matter what else is going on. That's a primary thing for me. That was just such a, I don't know, a revelation. Not that I may not have mouthed it before, but that time, that past spring, I just felt that so strongly. Things like that happen. You say things that just every once in a while take my breath away. They touch my heart. They speak to me. And you help me in my recovery. Help me strengthen that relationship that I have with the God of my understanding. Um, and I'm grateful to you for that. My family, um, my mother and father, my brothers and sisters, um, do not understand this stuff at all. Not at all. And um, quite frankly, they think I'm, I'm strange. Well, you know, Kathy, she's such a fanatic. Now, you know, that's hard for me because I don't like to be known as a fanatic. <laughs> and my family always thought that I was, you know, I was always the golden girl. I mean, I was always the greatest, and now I'm a fanatic, <coughs> and they don't understand that, <clears throat> and it's real hard for me, 
<coughs> too hard for me not to want to look good to them. <coughs> what I have to do now is to accept the fact that they don't understand this and let it go. And that just has to be all right. They are allowed not to get this. I need this. I had lunch the other day with a woman who lost a 32-year marriage because she would not stop going to Al-Anon. I understand that. I mean, this recovery has become so important to me, I won't let it go. No matter what it costs, I won't let it go. Um, I like where I am. When I get here, even though I have a lot of, I faced a lot of criticism for coming, when I get here, I know I am where I am supposed to be. And that is how I think, I believe I know God's will for me. When I am here, and I know I'm supposed to be here, I really believe I'm doing God's will. So when my mother says to me, as she often says, why do you keep going to that iron on? Rick is dead. <clears throat> I say, Mom, I keep going because I'm not. <laughs> Thank you very much.